So, we are still in the, what, what I was calling before the informational chapters of Tanya, the first eight chapters roughly, um, which present to us a whole new lexicon, set of terminology. Um, let's just maybe review a little bit where we've been so far, as far as the ideas and the, and the terms that we picked up. First of all, in chapter one, we picked up the idea of the Shtenafoshis, um, the two souls, and the idea of a nafish, of a soul, which we're not even really translating as a, uh, as a soul, more of a, uh, a drive or a, a, a will. And at the end of chapter one, we introduced the idea of this uh, primal drive or primal soul which we call the animal soul, which is concerned with self-preservation. In chapter two, we uh, introduced its, its antithetical or opposite drive, the second soul, which is the godly soul, or we can call it the drive for being absorbed into everythingness. Then in chapter three, we said, okay, so this drive for being absorbed into everythingness, um, it's not just this amorphous blob. It has an anatomy. What is its anatomy? What is its makeup, its composition? And I'm going to quiz you a little bit just to get the brains running and also just to uh, get some momentum here as we go into chapter four. So I want to do a little bit of chapter three quizzing. The soul is made up of, what are the parts or the components, or the makeup of the soul. What are they called? They're called what? Well, here, here, I'll, I'll ask you like this. When we speak about Hashem, the infinite, how the infinite emanates to the finite, we call them spheroids. The exact same configuration is mirrored in the... Com <coughs> Excuse me. In the, I'm going to have some water here. Amen. The exact same image of the spheroids is mirrored in the composition of the soul, and we call them not spheroids, but kaikais, very good, which means capacities or powers, soul powers. Okay, and how many kaikais, soul powers, capacities? Ten. Ten, excellent. And the ten is subdivided into how many general categories? Three. Two. Two general categories. Namely, one group of how many? Three. 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 And another group of? Seven. 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 Okay, and the group of three is what kind of capacities? Intellectual. Intellectual. And the group of seven capacities is? Emotional. Emotional. Okay, fantastic. And just one last question about chapter three. What is the relationship between the three intellectual capacities and the seven emotional capacities? Metaphorically, how do we describe that relationship? Parent. Parent-child, yeah. yeah, because the emotions are born from the intellect. Um, what you think about is what you end up caring about, which is obviously going to be really important in the instructional part of the book when we start trying to create emotions. And we, we hinted to it a little bit uh, last week. Remember we spoke about meditation? Remember I told you story about those kids mm -hmm. meditating about Hashem is everywhere? Okay. 
chapter 4. Okay, so the truth is we didn't really have a full picture yet because when what, we're, what we're speaking about till now is the soul proper, soul by itself, um, which is almost impossible to speak about the soul in that context. The soul really needs, well, I mean, everybody in this room is testimony to this fact that a soul really needs a body, right? Okay, disembodied souls are what? Sort of like, I mean, if I could use a metaphor or a, an analogy, if you remember the old monster movies from the 50s, if you remember, if you remember the, the Invisible Man, right? So remember the Invisible Man, what would he do in order that you could see him, that you know people wouldn't bump into him? So you could, Wrap clothes and bandages. Right, he'd put on clothes, and then on his face he'd have the bandages. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't see the Invisible Man, you'd see his clothes. You can't see the Invisible Man. You know why you can't see the Invisible Man? He's invisible. He's invisible. This is a sharp class. And <laughs> let's just take our knowledge from 1950s monster movies. And import it, wow, let's import it into Xivis. Uh, why don't we see souls? They're spiritual beings. You don't see souls because you don't, we don't see, at least not, uh, you know, physical sight with our fleshly eyes. We don't see that kind of stuff. But an embodied soul, we could see, or we, the, we see the effect of the embodied soul. And just like the Invisible Man puts on clothes, and then we can see the Invisible Man, the soul puts on clothes. It's actually called clothes. The term is levushim, clothing. That's what it's called in chapter 4 of Tanya. The soul puts on clothes. So what is the soul? Koiches, soul powers. Namely, perceptions and emotions, like we spoke about. But how are the perceptions and emotions expressed through clothing, soul clothing? Now, there are three specific types of soul clothing. Three specific ways in which the soul can express its perceptions and its feelings. Right? Because otherwise it's just the soul knows, the soul feels, but it's not coming out. There's no... There's no uh, expression. So the three types of clothing, the three modes of expression, namely are thought, speech, and action. The soul expresses itself, the embodied soul, expresses itself through thought, speech, and action. Now, we're not going to get into this in Chapter 4 so much, but I, I like to foreshadow, and I like to... Uh, give you a heads up, even if it's a spoiler a little bit, I like to give you a heads up about where we're heading and how we're going to use this information. Um, so I just want to hearken back to something we discussed in the first class about perfection. Remember, <laughs> this matter, meaning the Torah itself, is very near to you, very accessible to you. Everybody can fulfill the Torah. And we spoke about the, the definition of perfection. Remember that? 
first class perfection, perfection attainable. And then, and then we started speaking about the, the, the tzaddik who is perfect. It doesn't need any inhibition, right? Because it doesn't need impulse control because all of his impulses are holy. And then we spoke about this Bainini who is, um, he doesn't have perfect impulses. He has some impulses that are inappropriate and he has to stifle them. And yet he, he attains some other type of perfection. What type of perfection? I mean, we, wouldn't, we didn't spell it out so much in, in, in the first class, but the, the idea was that, you know, there's being perfect and there's doing perfect. The tzaddik is perfect. That's perfection of the soul powers. Perfect purity of mind and heart. His capacities are all pure. So he only has the capacity for godly ideas and godly feelings. That's the tzaddik. The bengi, on the other hand, has the capacities uh, to go either way. So his perfection clearly isn't internal perfection or soul power perfection, he's conflicted on that level. Like we spoke about in the first lesson about when, you know, Rivka being pregnant with twins, right? Having both of those drives conflicting. But where does he find perfection? In the doing, in the doing. Which now, that we have the, the, the terminology from chapter four, we can describe that a little bit more, um, we can describe that a little bit more clearly as, he doesn't have perfection in his koichais, but he has perfection in his levushim. He can't be perfect, but he can do perfect. Now, we're not talking about that yet. It doesn't plug in these concepts to the tzaddik, bengni, rasha paradigms. But I'm just, again, like, I want to give you a heads up so that when it happens in chapters, well, in, 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 in chapter 10, we'll talk about the tzaddik. Chapter 11, we'll talk about the rasha. Chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, we'll talk about the bengni. Um... So I just want you to know what's going to be happening. But for right now, let, let's just focus on the seeds of that idea. That you have the soul proper itself, the capacities. By the way, can I do a little bit, can I, can I risk um, going a little bit outside the scope of the class? Mm -hmm. okay? Right. So it's okay? Alright. So No, 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 it's, it's not like it's like inappropriate or anything. It's just, it's a little bit expert mode, and it could be a distraction. So I'm just going to say, if you don't mind hearing something that might be confusing, if it's not confusing, then great, then I was patronizing for even asking. And if it is confusing, then forget that I said it and we'll move on. Um, Tanya is not the only Siddhis that we have from the Alta Rebbe. It's a very specific, or it's a unique work that the Alta Rebbe contributed uh, in that it is this manual, this practical guide, owner's manual for the soul, so to speak. But the, the Alta Rebbe said a lot of this, and there is, uh, one might find what one believes to be contradictions between different sources, uh, but they're not contradictions, they're speaking in different contexts. So there's another work from the Alta Rebbe, uh, called Tera'ayr, which is an anthology of his sermons. And he, over there he says, by the way, remember in Tanya, which he called Beninim. Remember in Beninim when I told you what is the soul? The soul is, it's ten soul powers, the intellect and the emotion. Yeah, obviously, that's not a soul. Because a soul 
cannot be described. It can't be limited. A soul is godly. Soul, just like we can't describe God, you can't describe a soul. That's not the essence of the soul. The essence of the soul doesn't have intellect. It doesn't have emotions. But in the context of Benanim, in the context of the Book of Tanya, when we're speaking about the practical usage of the soul, so I refer to the soul capacities as what the soul is, but that's only relative to an even more external uh, level of the soul, which is the levushim, the clothing, or the forms of expression, which is what the soul does. So in Tanya, you know, there's what the soul is, the ten capacities, and then what it does, the three uh, garments. But then elsewhere, so this, we say even what we call the identity of the soul in Tanya, that's, that's external compared to the way we describe the soul elsewhere in Chassidus, which is beyond having even ten capacities. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, great. And I'm just going to move on because, like I said before, it's not uh, essential to the understanding here. I just I think it's interesting, and it will come up if you're going to continue studying other, other works. Okay, but let's get back in our, in our Tanya mode. Okay, so this is the soul. Ideas and emotions. And this godly soul has the capacity for godly ideas and the capacity for the commensurate godly emotions. That's what the soul is. Then, what the soul does. Three forms of expression. Thought, speech, and action. Doesn't say this here yet, but I am foreshadowing that the goal of the book is going to be focus on the, the garments, meaning what the soul does, try to attain perfection in that area, uh, don't worry so much on what the soul is, on its capacities. Um, that's more the realm of the tzaddik to have that perfection, that internal perfection. So another way we could, we, we could put it is like this. And I'm just giving you syn uh, synonyms. They, they all mean the same thing, but you just pick the pair of synonyms that you like, that resonate with you. We could talk about insides and outsides. Well, let me start with the technical terms. Kreches and levushim. And you want to translate kreches and levushim? Fine. Soul powers and soul garments. Cool. Okay, pretend I have a dry erase board right here. Okay? Kreches and levushim. Which are literally soul powers, soul garments. Fine. We could call that insides and outsides. Or you could call it who you are as opposed to what you do. Or you could call it self, as opposed to self-expression. So we have Kaiches and Levushim, which is soul powers and soul garments, which is insides and outsides, or who you are and what you do, self, self-expression. And like I said, they're all synonymous. I'm just giving you a variety. And you pick the one, pick the terms that click with you. Now, one of the, one, one of the difficult concepts here, and it, but it's extremely important for later on when we start to apply this information, like I said, we're going to apply the information by pursuing um, perfection, perfect control of the garments. So it's very, very important now to understand one of these garments is 
somewhat an odd man out. At least it, at first glance, it's, it's kind of different than the others. We have three garments with thought, speech, and action, and one of them is sort of different than the others. <coughs> hmm? Thought. Thought, yeah. So I, I, I kind of want to talk about thought. I want to give some special attention to that. The, the idea of action, physical action, deed, maise, being a behavior, I think we're all fairly comfortable with that. You know, so when you know you're all mommies, you know what it is when the kid says, "I didn't try to leave my uh, dirty plate on the table." Right? Well, <laughs> you didn't try to. The you are responsible for your behaviors. So it's not a question of whether you tried to. You didn't try to. You have volition. And when you do or don't do or whatever the case may be, you got up from the table and walked away and you left your plate there. There wasn't an accident. You were in control of your behaviors. Go back, take the plate, bring it to the kitchen. That's, a, that's an action. That's something you're clearly in control of. Okay. When we, when, we, when we speak about speech, that's also something that's clearly a behavior. Um, it's a behavior... Well, first of all, maybe maybe just let me define behaviors, at least relative to uh, the present discussion. One thing that's about uh, important about behaviors is they are willful. They're not automatic. They're not reflexive. They are deliberate, um, which is why we are accountable for our behaviors. So they're deliberate, and there's accountability. That, that that's a that's one component of it. Another component is, it, it, it isn't who I am. We're saying there's who you are and there's what you do, which is why there can be um, inconsistency between my who I am and what I do, which can work against us or for us. You know, sometimes it works, works against us. You could say, well, I, you know, I, that, I, that, was a, that, that behavior, that the thing, that was a betrayal of self. That's not me. Well, what do you mean it's not you? You did it. It's what I did. That's not who I am. And then, you know, it can work for us as well in the noble sense of hypocrisy. Like, I really don't want to show up at this kasana. You know, this is the fourth kasana this week. And you do it anyway. And you show up and you put in your appearance. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be there. But you know what? I was there. And that's all that counts. Nobody has to know what I wanted. Um... So behavior is, is willful, behavior is something you have to, to make a decision. Freedom of choice. Choice of what? Choice of behavior. Okay, that's a major theme in time. Another aspect of behavior is that um, because it's something you have to choose to do, it's not ongoing. You're not always doing it. Who you are, you are who you are all the time which is part of the reason why you can't escape yourself, right? Like they say, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> so you are who you are, but you, what you do changes. There's a duration to behavior. There's a beginning, there's an end. You're not always doing it.
So action is easy to see it as a behavior because, you know, I'm not doing it now. Oh, now I started doing it. And the difference between I wasn't doing it a minute ago and now I'm doing it now is, is a willful choice, which I'm accountable for. Speech. Speech you can also, now speech isn't a physical action, but it still has those aspects of behavior, the definitions of behavior. Um, it's a willful act. You chose to speak. Oh, I didn't mean to offend you. No, you didn't mean to offend me, but you did mean to open your mouth and not think, and you're accountable. You're accountable. You chose to speak. So, again, speech is something that has a beginning, it has an end, it has a duration. That's what I mean. It's, it, it has a duration, and you start speaking, you stop speaking, and when you start is by choice, and when you Stop is by choice. Okay. So those, action and speech is easy to see that. Where it gets tricky is thought. And, and one of the reasons that thought is tricky is because thought itself is like a mill that never stops turning. Thought itself is ongoing. It's constantly working in the background. The, 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 the distinction is, while thought, it, thought itself, the activity of thought may be, be constantly running, a particular thought is not constantly ongoing. So a particular thought does have duration, and its duration is based on decisions. I choose when to start thinking about this subject. I choose when to stop thinking about this subject. So thought itself is constantly running, but I pick what to think about and how long to think about it. So if thought is indeed like that mill that's constantly running, I don't choose the mill. In fact, I would say the mill itself is my capacity for intellect. You get a mill. Everyone has a mill. That's your capacity for intellect. It's part of your your soul powers. That's just the hardware. Um, the mill running, that's the software. That's machshava, the actual garment called thought. But what I put in the mill, in other words, if I put wheat grain in the mill, on the other end, I shouldn't be surprised when I get wheat flour. If I put barley grain in the mill, so I shouldn't be surprised on the other end when I get barley flour. L let me try to make this more relatable, which is difficult because thought is intangible and I'm going to try to make it more tangible. Um, but let's do this. Let's do an, an exercise. Um, can you think the times tables in your head? Don't speak it. Right? If you were to write it on a piece of paper, that would be action. If you would speak it, that would be speech. This is thinking it, which is thought. So let's just think the times tables. And since nobody knows what you're thinking, you could even um, do easy ones. <laughs> two times two is four. <laughs> That's what you're doing already. I didn't even have to tell you that.
I was doing 12 times 11, buddy. So you know. That's what I'm saying, not what I'm thinking. Okay, fine. Let's do it for half a minute starting now. Go. Okay, that's enough. Everyone did it? You all did it? You were all doing it. Okay. Now, I asked the question three times, and I got everyone was nodding. Yeah, did you do it? Did you do it? Nobody objected to my use of terminology. Nobody said, doing it. I wasn't doing anything. I was sitting here. <laughs> so everyone was comfortable with the idea that I referred to a thought or a mental activity as something you were doing. You were all comfortable with that. And, and why were we comfortable with it? Because it does conform to the definition of a behavior. In other words, let me ask you like this. Were you thinking the times tables a minute ago? What, I mean, when we're doing, how long ago was it, a minute ago? Okay. Were you thinking times tables a minute ago? Yeah, okay. Were you thinking times tables an hour ago? No. No, okay. Unless you happen to be a first grade uh, you know, uh, math teacher. Then. Third grade. Third grade. Did you know the times tables an hour ago? Yes. Oh, you knew them an hour ago, but you weren't thinking them. No. Ah, so that's the difference between knowing and thinking. We know a lot of stuff. We have a lot of capacities. Uh, it's like riding a bike. Once you know the t once you know the times tables, you don't unknow them. But, but you're not always thinking it. Because thinking is an activity, has a duration, a beginning, has an end. It's a behavior. Thought is a behavior. Albeit a behavior that we perform in our own heads. But a behavior nonetheless. Which means, again, foreshadowing the implications that will arise later in the book, we have free will as pertains to thought. We cannot turn off thinking, but we can choose what to think about and how long to think about it. Is there a question back there? Yeah. Say real loud because you're way in the back. Hi. Hi. Sometimes I can control my thoughts. I don't want to think about something, but it won't leave my head. Sometimes I can't control my thoughts. I don't want to think about it, but it won't leave my head. Okay. You're not the only one with that problem. <laughs> but thank you for bringing it up. You're the only one who brought it up, at least here and now. It's a good question. Now, the simple answer I could give you is, you got to come back for chapter 12. <laughs> I could do that. Should I do that, or should I answer it now? It's answer. not, it's not, I should answer. Quick okay. answer. Quick answer, okay. Quick is relative. The question is how long does the concept take to convey? Quick answers come back for chapter 12. The informative answer, which is not contained in chapter 4, but it's alluded to. The seeds are there. It's like this. 
there was once a a Jew who went to the Mezritcher Magid, that's the Talmud, chief disciple and the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. So this Jew went to the Magid and he, he complained of Machshavas Zoris, stray thoughts, foreign thoughts. He says, I get thoughts all the time, I don't want them, and I want to know how to control it. What do I do about it? So, the Maggot says to him, if you want coaching in this area, you have to go visit my student, the Reb Zev of Jitomir. Reb Zev lives in Jitomir. And you'll go visit him, and he'll, he'll help you with this. So this Jew, he goes to Jitomir. He doesn't know anyone else in the whole town. He only knows that he was supposed to find a certain student of the Magid named Reb Zev. So he's asking around, where does Reb Zev live? There were no addresses in those days. Where does Reb Zev live? You know, Reb Zev, the, 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 the message of Magid. And finally, and it's Erev Shabbos. And finally, somebody points out that's the house. And close to Shabbos, he, he hears the, you know, the typical hustle and bustle of a Jewish home on a Friday afternoon going on inside of the house. He knocks on the door, and nobody answers. So he thinks, maybe it's too, uh, too busy, nobody heard me. So he knocks again, nobody's answering the door. And he knocks again, and, and it's becoming suspicious because it's not a big house. <laughs> it's, it's a one-room house. They're ignoring him. And so he's knocking. He's like, excuse me, I'm looking for Rebzev's house. Hello? Nothing. And it's getting closer and closer to Shabbos, and no one's answering the door. So finally he has no choice. He has to put his stuff down somewhere. So he goes to the shul, puts his stuff down in shul, and he eats and he sleeps in shul with the uh, other... Uh, homeless people, essentially. And that was his Shabbos. Now, right after Shabbos, Reb Zev comes over to him, asks him, oh, Gaston Stott, you know, a, a, a new face, who are you? And uh, he, he introduces himself. His name is Reb Zev. And, and this Jew says, oh, yeah, I, I would like to meet with you. I would like to talk with you. Okay, well then come to my house. Come on over. And he comes to his house, and they make havdalah, and they have malava malka. Everything is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And one thing is troubling him, the, the guest. One thing is troubling this guest. He's receiving such a, a warm welcome now, but it's like, why didn't this happen out of Shabbos, when he was knocking on the door, and he was desperate for a place to stay, and he didn't know anyone, he, he needed hospitality. Now it's after Shabbos, and all of a sudden everything is so friendly. So he can't contain himself, and he says to Rebzev, he says, you know, I don't understand. You're being very friendly to me right now, but the Magid, your Rebbe, sent me to you. He sent me to you for one reason. You were supposed to teach me. I asked the Magad how to control my stray thoughts. He said, I should go to you. You were supposed to teach that to me. And then I came to your house out of Shabbos with no else, nowhere else to go. And I'm knocking on the door and you ignored me. And, 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 and the Magad sent me to you. You would have to send me to you to learn how to control my thoughts. And Rebzev looks at this fellow and he says, 
but that was the lesson I taught you immediately when you arrived in town. Just because there's a knock at the door doesn't mean you open it. There's a difference between the impulse for a thought and thought. Thought as a behavior is willful behavior. So you're saying, I don't want to think about this. Well, we either have to change our definition of want or we have to change our definition of think about. Because thinking about something is a willful behavior. Answering the door is a decision. So we need we need we need more terms here because <laughs> you know, it, I don't want to think about it, but then, then so don't. You know, doctor it hurts when I go like this, so don't go like this. Right? <laughs> so, all right. I was I was in Crown Heights, and I saw a sign. A guy had a sign on his driveway. And it said, don't even think of parking here. Right? A real tough New Yorker sound. Don't even think of parking here. And I thought to myself, that sign isn't productive. Because the moment I read that sign, you know what? I didn't even have a car. I was walking. And I saw the sign. And I thought of parking there. That's like having a billboard that says, don't picture an elephant on roller skates. Oh, ah! Too late. Too late. I did it. I did it. So, to tell someone don't think of something, I, I'm sorry, I can't. I, I would like to not think of it. What could he have said? He could have said, don't think about parking here. There's a difference between thinking of and thinking about. Thinking of, I don't really control the thoughts that knock at my door. Thinking of is the knock at the door. I don't really have a choice over what kind of knocks I get. Thinking about is opening the door and saying, come on in, sit down, relax, and have a bowl of soup. Unless you're a tzaddik, and we spoke about that, you know, the tzaddik has perfect purity of mind and heart. That means who he is. The nefesh, the capacity for intellect, the capacity for emotion is completely pure and clean. Therefore, the tzaddik will never think of anything but godliness. But if you're not a tzaddik, you will think of all types of things. The difference is whether you choose to think about everything you think of. So, it may occur to me the most unwholesome thoughts, the most horrifying thoughts, the most heretical thoughts, the most ridiculous thoughts. They may knock at the door. And, and generally speaking, that is a way that is 
one of the tried and true techniques of our own animal soul to derail us, to get its foot in the door, no pun intended, to come and tell us to do something that we wouldn't normally do, or to say something we wouldn't normally say is a little bit harder, a little bit more of a, it's a tougher sell for the animal soul. But to say to us, there's no harm in thinking, Who, who's being hurt here? Well, you know, maybe not like an action, uh, maybe not, you know, you know, maybe thinking of punching someone doesn't affect that person the same way as punching them. But it's still an immoral behavior. My sitting and thinking about punching the guy is still an immoral behavior, and it's still going to have an effect on me. And it's still taking me away from the godly opportunity of this moment, and it's weakening my defenses, and it's, it's a downward spiral. So I have to know that I don't choose what I think of, but I choose what I think about. So for instance, you know, with that guy's sign, don't even think of parking here. I'm sorry, I just did. And, and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm not a bad person because I thought of parking there. That's to be expected. I think of all types of crazy stuff. That's to be expected. No, I'm not going to be guilty of, about it. But let's say, for instance, I were to, you know, let's say I had been driving and I was looking, I, I was looking for a parking spot and I was driving around and I'd seen this guy's driveway and I identified it as a driveway and I, and I stop. I stop and I think to myself, I cannot park in that driveway and I will not park in that driveway because that's, that's a driveway, it's not a parking spot. However, I just want to sit here for a minute. No traffic behind me? Okay, good. Just want to sit here for a minute and imagine what it would be like to park there. You know, just, I mean, imagine the parallel parking. What, what a sweet parallel parking job I just did. I didn't really do it. It's a fantasy. I'm just thinking about it. It just fits perfectly there. Such a good spot, so convenient, equidistant to all the places I have to go. I go shopping, and I get all my pekalak and bring them back and put them in, put them away in the car. You know what? This is such a good spot. I'm gonna go out some more. And I didn't do any of this, but in my fantasy, wow, that was a great park. And there's no meter, there's no nothing, and the whole thing takes you know five seconds. And when I'm done thinking about parking there, I drive off and I say, thanks a lot, thanks for the fun, you know, and, and no one was harmed, nobody was harmed by my fantasy, because I, did, God forbid, I did not park in that man's driveway. Okay, let's not get into a discussion of what, what, what harm may, have, may or may not have been done. Let's ask a different question. Your parking fantasy was that thinking of or thinking about? Was it the impulse for a thought or was it willful thought? And therefore, it was a behavior. And therefore, it was a choice. So, when I learn about the three sold garments, what I'm really learning about are choices. 
for the good and for the opposite. Again, this is a lot of foreshadowing here because I'm going to talk about this more in chapter 12 and onward about where that battle line is drawn. It's the behavioral battle line, which includes action and speech and even decisions about willful thought. But I just want to, now, I want to, so that, that answers your question. Okay. But I want to now sort of veer away from that because that's sort of talking about what we, choices that we don't want to make. And I want to talk about choices that we do want to make which is really the focus of chapter four, and we don't have that much time left. If that clock is accurate, is that clock accurate? That, is it like yeah. tw 22 past? No, it's like three minutes ahead. It's about minutes. Okay. So we have about 10 minutes, okay. So let's just take 10 minutes and we'll be able to end on time, and I just want to speak a little bit about the kinds of behavioral choices that we do want to make and why they're so powerful. Um, which is really the focus of the chapter four. One thing about the soul garments is that it can definitely be, say, be said that the clothes make the man. They're cold garments, which makes them sound secondary, but the truth is um, they're not just superficial, they're not just um, an adornment. The soul garments lift the soul to a higher level than it stands at on its own. Because the soul garments of the godly soul are Torah and mitzvahs. Which Torah and Hashem are completely one. So therefore, the embodied soul, which is striving for what? Oneness with Hashem, achieves that only through garments, only through Torah mitzvah's behavior. So the Torah mitzvah's behavior is not just an externality or an, uh, an affectation or a secondary characteristic. The, the Torah garments and the mitzvah garments actually lift the soul up and, and give it that oneness or that um, that state of being absorbed in the the unity of Hashem. The soul wants to be at one with Hashem. It has powerful perceptions and powerful emotions. But none of that can be realized. Nothing happens from that without garments. Nothing happens without behaviors. So behaviors, in this sense, aren't um, behaviors aren't chopped liver. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's not just like, well, as long as the soul is in a body for 120 years, so keep yourself occupied. Here, kids, here's some papers and crayons, and keep yourself busy. Here's a bunch of mitzvahs for you to do. It's not like that. The mitzvahs are the way, the only way, for the soul to achieve that absolute 
melding and absorption and, and unity with Hashem. Because the mitzvah behaviors, which we said behaviors are willful decisions, that is a, the, each decision is, a, is an act of surrender. Unconditional surrender. When I do the mitzvah, I make myself the chariot, the vehicle, the conduit for God's will. Much like my hand is nullified to the will of my mind. So, it's not like I am telling somebody else, go bring me the cup. I don't even have to have words for it. All I have to do is will the cup to be, to be able to drink from it. And my hand immediately... Because my hand is my hand immediately complies because my hand is nullified to the will of, of my mind. That's why mitzvahs are called the limbs of the king, so to speak. Two hundred forty eight positive commandments are considered the two hundred forty eight limbs. That's why you notice in the Mishaberach we mentioned the two hundred forty eight limbs, right? And then there's the three hundred sixty five veins. That's a different thing. Those are the prohibitions. Prohibition, well, let me, let me state it like this. 248 limbs and organs. A limb or an organ has a function. Every positive mitzvah performs a different function. It reflects godliness in some other aspect in this world. 365 veins, that's what keeps the blood directed and not just uh, going any, any old direction. The prohibitions are what keeps the energy and the life force focused heading where it needs to go and not running off all over the place and feeding extraneous uh, forces. So, at any rate, the idea of mitzvahs, behaviors, mitzvah behaviors, that the soul can only fulfill while in a body is, is not something to be taken lightly. There's a story that uh, the Vilna Gon, when he was, before he was, he was his, his passing, he was surrounded by his Talmidim. He was crying, and they asked him why he's crying, if he's afraid of uh, judgment. He says, no. He says, I'm crying because I'm about to leave this world, this, this, this place, where, and he, 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 he held his, his talus cotton, and touched his talus cotton, he says, I'm about to leave this place where for a few kopecks you can buy a talus cotton and thereby become one with the will of the infinite. In other words, you can't do that up there. The disembodied soul can't do that. It's a great pyrotechnics show up there, as far as, you know, the souls up there are all delighting in the, and basking in the ray, the glow of, of, of godly revelation. So it's very pleasurable up in heaven. But the opportunity to surrender, to become one, that's only down here. Another way you could put it is, maybe this is a little philosophical, but hey, why not? Up there, in heaven, that's that's the pyrotechnic show. Um, that's a subjective experience. I am observing God, or godly revelation. 
I, the soul, observing, observing some type of godly revelation. That's that's the time of the pleasure of the spiritual world. Down here, it's totally objective. I'm not observing anything. I'm becoming. I don't observe anything. To the contrary, my spiritual sensitivity is is all but cut off upon embodiment. You know, the soul gets into a body, and there's just those layers and layers and layers and layers of, of well, first of all, just that, that being flooded with senses, with stimuli that, 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 that trigger all this, the senses. So the phenomenological world that you touch and, and, and see and, and hear and taste, that just buries the spiritual sensitivity. So subjectively speaking, we don't observe a lot. We don't observe a lot of godliness unless we want to sit and meditate and think about it and focus. But we can become one with godliness. The soul up there doesn't have that opportunity. It can be an observer, a very sensitive observer, but it can't surrender. The soul in the body, because of that choice of doing the mitzvah, not my will, his will, and I surrender to that, and then I become a vehicle to it, like my hand, which reaches for the cup without even being told, just it automatically obeys the will of, of the brain. So, yeah. I'm confused about how the soul of there is observing godly revelations when I thought that the soul was actually part of God himself. And I know, I know here we have the opportunity for what you're speaking about. Wow. But there, isn't, isn't it already... Such good questions. Oh my goodness. This is so good. Okay, so you say you're confused about how do we say, like Rabbi, you told me in chapter 2 the soul is, is a veritable part of Hashem himself, and now you're saying that up there it's observing. Okay, this is so good. There are levels. Everything is about context. So the essence of the soul is intrinsic oneness with, with Hashem. The, then there's the heaven experience, pre-embodiment and post-embodiment, which is another level. It's another level, it's another world. And that's a subjective experience. Then there is the embodiment experience, which is the lowest, but yet it's the highest. It's the lowest in the sense of, subjectively, it's the lowest, but objectively, it's, well, not only objectively, it's the most, it's the only... The embodiment experience is the only opportunity for the soul to have an objective relationship with, with Hashem through the, through the act of surrender. So to answer your question very simply, when we're talking about the essence of the soul, yes, the, the essence of the soul is already one. You're talking about the heaven experience in the soul's journey, that's a lower level already, that's a descent. And once it's descending, let it come all the way down, for the lowest descent, which, paradoxically, is actually the highest level, or you could put it like this. The soul starts off as absolutely one with Hashem, and it ends off as absolutely one. What's the difference, then, between how it starts and how it finishes? It starts being one with Hashem because that's... You know, it was born with a silver spoon in its mouth. That's it, you know. Like, uh, I didn't make this. It was given to me. The unique benefit of the embodiment experience and the oneness that follows the embodiment, the, the Kabbalistic term for it, by the, by the way, is 
Li'ishtaba begufa demalke. To be inhaled into the body of the king. It's the opposite of yipach ba'apof. Hashem breathes, exhales the soul. The metaphor you know, talks about the, the soul going into to, to Adam, is the exhaling of the soul, uh, which that terminology is used in chapter 2 when we speak about the godly soul. So the reverse of that is the inhale. The only difference is that you're a participant. You're, you, you chose willfully. So the difference between the oneness we start with and the oneness that we finish with is the first one was, it was just what I was born with. I was just given. It was, a, it was given to me. It's a free ride. But where, where the soul ends up, that was a partnership. So it's like Hashem telling the soul, you want to be really close? Yeah, let's be close. But how can we be closer than we already are? Hashem says, here's the idea. We're going to get really, really far apart from each other. No, the soul says, I don't want it. Yeah, you're going to get, we're going to get really far apart. How far apart? You're going to send me down to heaven? Because heaven is down. You got to remember. And Hashem says, no, even further down. Well, where? I'm going to put you in a body. But that's going to separate us. That's going to, I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be... Yeah, but there you're going to get to choose. And there you're going to have the experience of surrender. And then our oneness will be something that we did as partners. Mm. Which is the ultimate paradox. The, 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 the reunion as opposed to the inherent pre-existing union. Being a greater oneness... And it was these these uh, these are uh, philosophical concepts, but, but yeah. Very simply, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, well no, so because absence makes the heart grow fonder. Do you have to do no, I, I decidedly did not say absence makes the heart grow fonder because that's merely subjective. Absence makes the heart grow fonder is is a feeling, but what we're describing is much more than a feeling. I meant to do it. It's work. Come back to one another. Yes, there's a feeling. That's the samoyin, the thirst, the yearning that the soul has when it's in the embodied state. But it's much more than just a feeling. It's not just the soul feels more. It's not just like, you know, the soul really appreciates Hashem when it's embodied. It's more than that. It's an objective difference. The only way the soul can choose oneness is through the experience of surrender. And the only way to experience surrender is through free will. And the only way to have free will is to have choices which doesn't happen up there, it only happens down here. So that's the power of the soul garments and the behaviors. Okay, we went a little bit over, but any, any, if any further discussion, we'll have it off the record. Okay.